0: eat a lot of turkey and uh, spend time with family and friends. Holidays are coming up. Sometimes I enjoyed getting to do a little bit more of that this past week. I know that uh, as the holidays are coming up sometimes it can be a really busy season but also uh, every now and then you find yourself with some more days off work and uh, a chance to kind of just do things that you find relaxing. And one of the things that I like to do if I have some free time is uh, watch the TV show Survivor. Anyone else like to watch Survivor? (laughs) Okay we got a lot of Survivor fans. Um, Yeah so I won't explain the whole show, but basically one of the things that happens in the show is that people are uh, divided up into these two different teams that they call tribes, and they end up having to do uh, challenges uh, against each other consistently. And uh, one of the challenges that happens on the show a time is where everyone on the team will be blindfolded, and uh, there's only one person on the team that can see, and then they have to call out directions for everybody else who's blindfolded to go and collect the uh, various items, and then the first team that can get all of these items back uh, either wins the challenge or gets to move on to the next stage. And uh, I, I share that with you because I think that sometimes we can go through life As people like those survivor players, like we're blindfolded. We can't see the whole world that's around us. We might kind of have some way of of knowing how to navigate the world, but there's a lot around us that we're not really able to see. And uh, I, I say this because the Bible enlightens us to the reality that we live in a world that is also affected very much by a spiritual realm. Again, I know that's hard for us sometimes as uh, 21st century Americans uh, to think about, but the Bible paints it as a very real picture, that there is a spiritual realm. There are unseen beings. Uh, There's a, a reality of quite a bit that we cannot see, but that does affect our real world here. Just as those survivor players can't see that post that's in front of them, they can still walk into it and get hurt by it. So just because we can't see something doesn't mean that it's not there. And if we're going to be people that, are, are, that know how to navigate this world, we would do best to listen to the one that actually can see. Just like in that challenge as uh, the, the teams have a call, the one person that's not blindfolded that's able to help and direct them and show them the things that are in front of them and, and give them guidance in how they're supposed to navigate this field in front of them, we would be wise to be people that listen to the one that actually can see this unseen realm so that we would know how to navigate it. You know, for the past few months, we've been studying together this book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We call it a book, but in reality, it's a letter that was written by Paul to a church in Corinth. And uh, if you've been with us, you've probably heard me say this 10 times by now, but I'm going to keep telling you what's going on uh, very briefly, which is the fact that Paul uh, was trying to, in many ways, fix a a strange relationship that he had with a church there in Corinth. See, Paul had gone to this city, it was Corinth, it was in Greece. He planted this church, he shared the gospel with them. people got saved, the church started to build. And then he went on, he'd go start planting other churches. But he would keep in contact with them. He'd have correspondence, he'd write letters, and uh, every now and then he had issues that he had to work out with them. And so you see him uh, right now in this letter trying to work out a pretty major issue that had come up, which was the fact that there were these false teachers that had come into Corinth after he left, and they were challenging a lot of his authority. They were challenging his credibility as an apostle of Jesus. And they were teaching something that was slightly different from what Paul was teaching. And so in this letter, he's defending himself against a lot of these attacks. And in that, he's showing us a picture of what a faithful Christian servant is. And so each week, we've seen this different aspect of, you know, a faithful Christian servant is. For example, last week, we saw that a faithful Christian servant is someone that's generous. Well, today, we're going to see that a faithful Christian servant is a spiritual warrior, as Paul gets in towards the end of the letter here, these last three chapters, uh, he, he really starts to go more on the offensive against uh, some of these false teachers that have been causing problems in Corinth. So he's going to lay into them a little bit more today. And as that happens, we'll see that what was going on was not just some sort of shallow church drama between uh, Paul and these other people that didn't like Paul, but it was actually a, an aspect of spiritual warfare. Yes, it was playing out in, in our physical realm, But there are spiritual forces that were at work in making this happen. So with that being said, we are going to uh, pray and then we'll dive into our main text for today. God, we love you and uh, we just thank you so much that you are here. Uh, We thank you that as we sang in that first song, you're a mighty warrior. Um, You're a God who's living, you're active, you fight for us. God, we thank you that you're a God that makes light shine in the dark places. And so uh, as we go through your word together this morning, Lord, I pray that your word would shine light even on our hearts, maybe in places that are dark there. Uh, Enlighten us to your truth, God, and help us to be people that respond to it and that live the way that you've called us to live. Um, We love you, Lord, and uh, we pray this to your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to be uh, in First, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians, chapter ten. We're actually going to read a, a decent amount of text again today. It's going to be all of chapter ten, which is a kind of short chapter, and then about half of chapter eleven. Um, so, if you're if you're kind of new to us in show, one of the things we really value the Word of God a lot. Like we believe the Bible is God's word to us. So, we say, hey, there's a ton of value in us actually just coming together, reading this, understanding it well, knowing what was going on, and then after we get that we'll see how can we responsibly apply this to our lives today. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to read, uh, starting at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you in a way, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world." For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be uh, trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you, We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go, go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super-apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was the sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Okay, we're going to stop there. that, that's the, the main text that we're going to be working with today, and as always, I want to help you first see what's going on there, and then we'll see how we can apply it to our lives today. So first off, there's a lot of text we just read. What is it that's going on in this passage? Just to, to briefly kind of give you a big picture of what Paul is dealing with here is the fact that he is countering some of the things that these false teachers who have come into Corinth are saying about him. So they're specifically attacking his character in several ways. We've seen this some in uh, earlier parts of the letter, but I I see kind of four major things that these false teachers are thinking and trying to influence the Corinthians to think. And, And the first is that they were trying to say that Paul is timid, Basically, that he's a weak leader, right? You see that in, in 10, 1 to 2. He says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you, went away. I beg that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. Essentially, they're saying, man, this guy, Paul, uh, that you guys respect, he, yeah, he writes these letters that are kind of heavy and weighty, uh, but in reality, when he comes to us, he's kind of like, not very impressive. You know, I, of course, haven't hung out with uh, Paul personally. (laughs) All I have is his letters, and I would say that they're weighty and forceful. Um, But I don't know what he was like in in person. But apparently, in the minds of these false teachers, they thought that a leader should be be someone that has a very commanding, if not intimidating type of presence uh, that commands uh, respect. And with this, uh, Paul answers this accusation, saying it's false. He says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when present. You see, Paul was ready to be forceful if he had to. It wasn't like Paul was some guy that was timid or scared or afraid to, to be stern with people, or even to exercise discipline if he to, but that is not the thing that he wanted to start with. You know, you think about this. The reality is that love starts with gentleness, but it moves to boldness if necessary. Paul wasn't timid. Rather, what he wanted to do was be as gentle and tender and loving as he possibly could be with the Corinthians before he had to do anything to resort to moving to be a little bit more rough. Think about how God treats us. What does God do when he wants us to to live a certain way? Does he immediately start punishing us even for something that we don't even know what's right or wrong? No. God continually extends a loving and gentle hand towards us first. And then eventually, if we continue to not listen, then he may start to use more forceful measures. Think of how he did this with the nation of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament we see this right? The the nation of Israel, it's these, these special people that God had called to have this special relationship with himself. He had given them this law, and what did they do? They broke it over and over and over again. And what did God do? Well, the first thing he did is he would send prophet after prophet after prophet, and he would have mercy, and he would continue to deal with them with a gentle hand at first. And as they continued to reject that, eventually what did God do? He sent them into exile, they, they got, he let them get conquered by other countries because there was, they had continually been unresponsive to his gentleness. But in the same way, that's essentially the, the approach that Paul is taking with the Corinthian church here. He's being gentle first. He's being tender. He's being kind. That's why in person he seems like someone that's not as intimidating. But he's saying, hey man, if it comes down to it, I'm willing to be stern if I have to. And, and frankly, look at how Jesus came too. We're, we're getting into the Christmas season now. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Everyone can agree we're in the Christmas season now? Now Thanksgiving's over, yeah? Okay, yeah. Uh, what, what, what is it that we're even celebrating in the Christmas season? How did Jesus, God in the flesh, how did He come to us? Did He come down as a king? Did He come rolling tanks in? No. He, he came humbly as a baby in a manger. He came with a soft hand first. Now, Jesus is going to come again and we get a picture of that. When he comes again, he's going to come as a rider on a white horse. And there's going to be a sword coming out of his mouth. Like, it's going to be different. But he came with gentleness first. And so we should not mistake the humility and loving tenderness that Paul had for weakness. This was a mischaracterization of him by his enemies. You know, the second thing that they thought was that they were more qualified than Paul to lead the Corinthian church. And this is shown by the fact that they boasted about themselves a ton. A ton. Like, they seem to have a very high opinion of themselves, and uh, they got this high opinion of themselves basically off of, by their own standard, okay? This is kind of a confusing section here in 12 through 18, we're going to go back over it, and I'll sh- show you what's going on here. It says, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When, we, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God Himself has assigned to us—a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we did not come to you, for we did not get as far as you with the go- for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of the work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand, so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Okay, so this is kind of strange language, and it's actually somewhat challenging to translate. Uh, But the gist of what's going on here these Corinthians, these these false teachers coming to Corinth. We're basically saying, we should, are, are people that uh, you should listen to because they had met a certain standard that they thought was the standard a teacher should meet, okay? So maybe that means they were really good speakers, as we'll see probably in a little bit, or uh, they were uh, successful, or uh, you know, they had a lot of money, or whatever. There were basically a, a standard of what they thought a good teacher should have, and so they compare themselves with this standard that they've created, and they say, this is why you should listen to us. Okay. Uh, imagine this, you got, most of you guys are college students, uh, if you have an assignment, if you have a good teacher at least, hopefully, they have some sort of a rubric that they're giving you. There's a standard that shows you this is what I'm looking for and this is the kind of thing that you will be graded against. Okay. Now imagine that you are giving that assignment and you decide rather than uh, going off of what the teacher is looking for, I'm going to create my own rubric <laughs> and I'm going to decide what I think is actually valuable. Uh, would that be wise? No, that's not going to go well for you, right? And that's why he says it's not wise when they commend themselves and compare themselves against themselves. So basically, they've created this standard of what they think is valuable, and then therefore they're going to say, well, you should listen to us because we meet this standard that we have, right? It's, I think I have a meme about this. Yeah, right? Like that, That's them. I'm going to give myself this medal because I, I like the, the standard that I have. This is, of course, foolishness. The reality of what matters is not what they have to say about themselves, it's what God has to say. And so here, God has shown his approval of Paul by planting the church through him. That's what he's getting at through this. Paul may not have some of these other kind of things that he points to to boast about, that these false teachers would boast about on their, for themselves, But on the other hand, Paul was arguing that he actually had a legitimate claim to lead the Corinthians because of what God had done through him. His credentials didn't come from anything related to his own abilities, but rather it was just about the fact that God worked through him to start that church. And this is why he talks about his sphere of service that included the Corinthians, how he got to them with the gospel, right? So we notice Paul is in a sense, boasting. He's he's like trying to line up his credentials, but it's very different from the kind of boasting that these false teachers are doing. The false teachers are boasting in themselves. They're saying, look at me, look at my abilities. This is how good I am. This is why you should follow me. What Paul is doing is boasting in the Lord. He's not drawing attention to any of his own abilities. All he's saying is, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. You judge if you think that he's actually worked through me and let him be the one that that actually decides who you should listen to. And that's what he said. It's not who commends themselves that matters. It's who the Lord commends. Paul only wanted to boast in the Lord. This means not boasting about your own abilities, but boasting in what God is doing and has done. And maybe he's used you in that process. This gave him a far more legitimate uh, uh, legitimate claim to be a teacher of the Corinthians than any of these other false teachers had. You know, a third uh, attack that we see, these false teachers thought that they were better leaders because they were better speakers. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 11. He says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. That's what I think he's calling these false teachers. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So whoever these false teachers were, it seems like they knew how to speak pretty well. They were probably trained in oratory. And uh, Paul basically is saying, the reality, like, who cares about this? What, what does it matter how well you can dress something up? What matters is the actual substance. Uh, you know, turkey has a reputation sometimes being dry. Did anyone have dry turkey at Thanksgiving? Okay, a few of you guys had dry turkeys. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, now, now, which would you rather have at your Thanksgiving table? A turkey that looks really good. Like it looks like it could be in a magazine, but you cut up into it and it's dry as a bone. Or would you rather have one that, you know, maybe it isn't dressed up very nice, there isn't any fancy stuff around or anything, but when you cut into it, it's juicy, it's tender. There's good substance to it. And, you know, or we've got Christmas coming up. Which is more important, the way that a gift is wrapped or what's inside the actual box? I, I know for me, I care a lot more about what's inside the box than the way that it's, that it's presented and wrapped. And and so Paul is saying, yeah, you know what? Maybe maybe he's even willing to concede the fact that these guys might be better speakers than him. But the reality is that doesn't actually matter. The the ability of this person to present is not something that that should be a credential that you're deciding and whether or not you should believe their message or Paul's message. What matters is the substance. And finally, we see that these false teachers thought that their teaching was more valuable because they charged for it. Okay? Look at this in Second Corinthians 11, 7-9. Paul says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Okay, so uh, you guys... I heard the phrase before, like, you get what you pay for, right? we Have all heard that? Um, that seems to be the phrase that these false teachers are essentially living by. Oh, Paul, he's the one that's giving you free teaching. His thing must not be worth anything. For us, we're going to charge you. We're going to make sure that you have to actually financially support us, and that's you that we're actually worth listening to. I think that Paul loved a little bit more by the phrase, maybe, like, the best things in life are free <laughs> for that, too. And that, that was basically his mentality. It wasn't that his teaching uh, wasn't valuable enough to charge for it. Rather, it was that it was so valuable he refused to charge for it. You don't, Paul didn't want to put any stumbling block in the way of the Corinthians to stop them from hearing the gospel. So he never asked them to support him financially when he was ministering to them. Now, by the way, it was perfect legitimate for him to do that. Like there would, there would have been nothing wrong with Paul asking the Corinthians to support him financially as he was living amongst them and teaching them and discipling them. Uh, we actually see in an uh, earlier letter he wrote to them, 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 12, he says this, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And so Paul was saying, I had every right to ask you for financial support. And it appears that he did that with other churches, right? He even talked about how the Macedonians came and supported him while he had some needs in in Corinth. Why he was so unwilling to ask the Corinthian church for money, I don't know. I'm not sure what was going on there. But he seemed like he was clearly saying, this is not the best idea in this context. So even though he had this right, he says, you know what, I think that this might be a stumbling block here in Corinth, and so I'm just going to remove it entirely. It wasn't that Paul's teaching wasn't valuable enough to charge for, rather it was so valuable that he refused to charge for it. You couldn't put a price on what he was offering, and he wanted to make sure that it was accessible to everyone. And so we see that all of these attacks are attacks that were being hurled on Paul. They were real attacks that he was having to deal with, in his actual life. But when he looked at the situation, he saw something that was deeper. He didn't just see this as some annoying people that were slandering him. He saw it for what it truly was, which is spiritual warfare. Right? He actually calls these people servants of Satan. Look at uh, chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself... Masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So, Paul understood there was a spiritual war that was going on here. And it was taking place through the fact that Satan had servants, and and who who knows if they were consciously aware that, whatever, but regardless, Satan was using them in a way that they were trying to undermine the teaching and influence of Paul in this church. And in doing so, he was trying to lead them astray from believing the true gospel and living faithfully with the Lord. You know, even when we started this passage in Second Corinthians 10, he, Paul really spoke about spiritual warfare right from the beginning. Look at what he said in chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This was a spiritual struggle. The false teachers are setting themselves against Paul, who was a true apostle of God and taught the true gospel because they wanted to teach a different one. And he says this in 11, 2-4, explaining, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes to you and preaches of Jesus other than Jesus we preached. Or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. This was a big deal. Stakes were high. This wasn't just a petty argument that was going on between Paul and some people in Corinth that didn't like him. He was fighting a spiritual battle, and frankly, we are still engaged in this type of spiritual battle today. And, you know, I told you the first thing we want to do is find out what is it that's going on in the text, and then we're going to say, how is it that this applies to our lives today? And there's quite a bit we could say, but one of the biggest things is that we are still engaged in this same kind of spiritual battle that Paul was engaged in there almost 2,000 years ago. Satan continues to masquerade as an angel of light. He continues to try and undermine the true gospel. He continues to try and spread lies and deception to, to move people away from being faithful to the Lord. You see, the reality is we are very much in a spiritual war. And the Bible is, is very, very clear about this. Um, I don't think that most of us live our lives thinking about this very often. Right? Like, it, I know at least even for me, it's something that I accept on an intellectual level. Like, oh, yeah, like I, I, I get that. I believe the Bible talks about it. But, but how much do I actually think about the fact that there is a, a real spiritual world around me that's influencing the things that, that are going on? And that's maybe even trying to influence the way that I think. Something that I need to take an active stance in. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6 11 to 12. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You understand this? Like, if you're a Christian, regardless actually whether you're a Christian or not, you are living in a war zone. Like, you're living in a war zone, and, and the reality is are you going to open up your eyes to that and do something, or are you just going like, to continue to basically be a victim of whatever's going on around you? You know, we, we have a, a real enemy that is actively trying to attack us. Look at 1 Peter 5:8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, he doesn't go to try to devour us physically. Most of the time, when Satan attacks, it's not going to be something that, that, uh, that is like, you know, you, all of a sudden you wake up with a broken arm or something like that. I'm not saying that that can't happen. But, but by and large, that's not really the way he tends to, to operate. Rather, Satan's number one weapon, by far, is lies. He absolutely loves to lie. He hurls lies around all the time. Look at how Jesus described him, this, this enemy, a devil. It's prowling around, around like a roaring lion. John eight forty four. 44. Uh, Jesus said this. Some people that were opposing him. You belong to your father, the devil, and want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. There is no truth in the devil. He's, he, little, I love that, that phrase. When he lies, he's speaking his native language. That's, it's what's most natural for him to do. And this is the number one way that he tries to attack us. It's in, in the battlefield of our minds. You can try to ignore this all you want, but it doesn't change the reality of the world that we live in. And it's a world that is heavily influenced by the lies of Satan. Heavily influenced, right? Like you would think about the, the first thing that the, uh, Paul even referenced it in the 2 Corinthians passage about how Eve was deceived by the serpent. Well, what was it that he was doing? What, how was Satan trying to deceive her? He was trying to tell her that, you know what, God has told you something, but I actually have a better way for you. I know he said, don't eat this, but if you do, you'll actually be like God. And don't we continue to buy into that lie day after day after day? That we say, you know what, I know that God may have said this over here, but in reality, I think that I can figure out a better way. And I would rather be God of my own life. You see, this is how the vast majority of us live. And so it's no surprise, 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Yes, God is God Almighty, and we'll get that, we'll talk about that, but the reality is this world is heavily living under the the lies and the influence of Satan, saying that we can be our own gods, that that we know what's best for us, that we should rebel against him and do whatever we think is right. And so this idea of of a spiritual war raging around us might be difficult for us to grasp or difficult for us to accept, but if you believe what, what... the Bible is telling us, like, it's laying this out there for us, that this is a reality that we live in. And rather than act like this isn't the case, we would be wise to seek help, right? Just like it's hard for those survivor players with the blindfolds to navigate that that field full of obstacles, if they don't have a caller to guide them, how in the world can we hope to live in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of a spiritual war zone, without one that can guide us? We don't have the eyes for it. And so we need help in this spiritual war, and praise God, He has given it to us. Right? Like, like, we have a God that's given us help. First off, He made us aware of it in the first place. Like, He's given us His Word that's, that's teaching us this reality. And that's very valuable in of itself. And second, He conquered this darkness. Like, He, he didn't just let the, the, this world remain under the power of the evil. When He goes, He says, I'm going to step into this and have light shine in a dark place. Oh, this John one, one to five. In the beginning was the word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light was the light, and, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We have a God that steps into darkness, steps into this war zone. He says, I'm gonna shine. I'm gonna shine in this. And guys, this is this is the reality of the gospel, which is the fact that we're captives, right? Like we we were people that were far from God, that that had rebelled against him along with Adam and Eve and all everyone else after them, that, that said, we're gonna choose our own way over God's. So we were separated by him uh, from him by sin. And rather than just leaving us as captives of the enemy, what does God do? He said, I'm gonna I'm gonna take on flesh, I'm gonna step into the darkness. So that's what Jesus does. He comes, he walks among us. He lives a perfect life, and he dies on the cross. And, and as he dies on the cross, the wrath of God for our sin is literally being poured out on him. As he comes and sacrifices himself as a rescue mission to deliver us from the enemy. And you know, he rose from the dead on the third day. And as he did that, he showed, I've, I've conquered. Like this, this was a successful rescue mission all that want to come to me, that want to put their faith in me, you can be delivered from this kingdom of darkness, you can be delivered from being a captive of Satan, and you can be transferred into the kingdom of light. You can actually be adopted into the family of God. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has stepped into this to conquer darkness. And you know, not only do we have help in the fact that, that Jesus came and, and defeated the curse of sin and death, that we could have life, but also God has given us armor to fight in this battle as we still are find ourselves in this stage of already but not yet. And what I mean by that is that Jesus has already won the victory, but it's not yet fully been brought to completion. We know where we're marching towards. We know what's happening. It just hasn't been fully consummated, right? I think of like World War II, for example, when the Allies landed on, on that beach in Normandy and they secured that beach at D-Day it was only a matter of time until we were going to win the war. The the conclusion was basically inevitable at that point. But there was still this time where the war had to continue to play out until it was actually won in its totality. And that's kind of the space that we find ourselves in right now. The cross was D-Day, right? Like Jesus came, he established, he he conquered, and it's like, here, here we are, victory has been achieved, but it hasn't yet fully been consummated. And so while we find ourselves in that already but not yet stage, we find ourselves as active participants in this war. And that's why we should suit up. Suit up with the armor that God's given us. And praise God that he's given us armor to fight in this. Look at this, Ephesians 6, 13 to 18. Right after Paul has talked about our our war uh, being against the, the spiritual forces of darkness, he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. God's given us all of this stuff to fight this war, right? Like the belt of truth. He's given us truth. Praise God that, that like he can actually see clearly and he's shown us what reality is. He has given us righteousness. This is both in that uh, he, he gave it to us and that it was transferred to us by Jesus uh, paying the penalty for us. He took our sin, he gave us his righteousness, but he's also taught us what righteousness is. He's given us His Word. He's he's sent us teachers. He's shown us how it is that we should actually live to please Him. He's given us peace. And this comes through the Gospel that I just shared. Right? When we find ourselves in this spiritual war and Satan's hurling lies at us and he wants to steal the peace out of your life, you can go back to the Gospel of peace. Remembering that you are a person that's been bought by the blood of Christ. That you have literally God's kingdom that you're an heir to. He's given us faith. That we can be people that that have the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's how the Bible defines faith. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As we live as people of faith, we can be assured our God is real. He cares for us. He's taking care of me. One day he is going to win. That helps us block every single one of those flaming arrows that comes in that the, the enemy wants to hurl at us. He's given us salvation, the helmet of salvation, that this can be something that comforts us. He's given us the Holy Spirit, right? Like God has put His Spirit to dwell within you, to even try and transform you into the person that He wants you to be. He's literally changing you from the inside out. He's guiding you. He's convicting you of sin. He's helping you discern between truth and error. He's given us His Word, right? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That, that he's shown us what it, who he actually is and he's put it in, in clear terms as we get to read his word. He's given us prayer that we can be people that, that come and ask him for help and that we can pray and help our brothers and sisters out as well. Right? As he talks about praying for the Lord's people. He's given us all of these different uh, pieces of armor that we can put on. We can suit up and actually fight in this battle. We don't just have to be uh, pawns that are under the influence of Satan. We don't have to be people that just let his lies continue to wreak havoc in our lives and in our world, but we have to be people that actually choose to take up this fight. Yes, we have a God that helps us, that has fought for us. Amen, praise him. We could not do without him, but he also calls us to take up this fight as well, right? He's done so much for us, but what are we told to do? Put on the full armor of God. Yes, he's given us the armor, but you've got to put it on, and remember, this spiritual battle takes place primarily in the mind. That's why we, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that we have to take every thought captive. Right? I'm going to reread 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, I think this is so important for this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Man, what what thoughts do you have coming into your mind that are not obedient to Christ? I'll bet, honestly, you probably have quite a few thoughts that you come across each day that are not obedient to Christ. What we're called to do is capture them and shed the light of the cross upon them. View this in light of the truth that God has taught us. What happens to these thoughts when they are held captive to Christ against the light of the gospel? For example, what happens to fear? Right? You're, let's say you're, you're really worried. You're, you're, you're so fearful about your future. Maybe it's something, ah, I don't know how I'm going to pass this test that's coming up, or I'm going to be single all my life. I don't know how I'm ever going to find joy in, like this. or Whatever. It's, it's fear, we live in it all the time. What happens when we take that fear and we take those thoughts and make them captive to Christ? You're so worried about, oh my goodness, am I going to be able to pass this test? Why are you so worried? I'm not saying God's going to give you supernatural knowledge to pass the test, but what I am saying is God's going to take care of you regardless. Even if you fail that test, that is not the key to joy and success in your life. Like, like, when you realize that you have an eternal father that that is looking out for you and caring for you and guiding you, why are we so stressed about stupid stuff like that? Or, you know, oh my goodness, I'm going to be single all my life, how am I ever going to find a spouse? You you realize that the Lord knows every hair on your head? Like, take that fear and, and make it captive to Christ. Say, God, I know that you know what you're doing. Please guide me in helping me understand how to navigate this. And if singleness is a call you have on my life, help me submit to that and have joy in that. And if, if I'm going to get married and I just need to have patience, then help me be patient in that. You see how as we take all of these different kinds of thoughts, we make them captive to Christ, it literally becomes life-changing. Like, like your, your desire for, for money and greed, you know, thinking that money is something that's either going to give you satisfaction or joy or security. Those are all things that Jesus already offers us. So all of a sudden, this desire to, to become rich and think this is what the, 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 the key to the good life is when I have enough money to do everything I want to do, that starts to get demolished when you take that thought captive and hold it against Christ. Selfishness, anxiety, all, all these kind of things. You, you see that Satan wants to fill our minds with all sorts of lies thinking that God will not be enough. And frankly, that's what he was trying to do to Eve in the very beginning. God had given Adam and Eve everything that they needed. And what's he say? Well, He tries to make her think that God is holding back something. We have to fight this idea that God is not enough. Take every thought, make it captive to Christ. It transforms the way that we see the world. You know, the false teachers that Paul was combating saw everything through the lens of this world. They valued worldly stuff that really isn't that important, and you can see that in the areas where they were attacking Paul, right? They valued power. They said that he was timid right? They, they valued success. They boasted a lot about their own abilities. They valued talent. They, they wanted you to know that they were impressive speakers, certainly compared to Paul. They valued money. They looked down on Paul for not charging. You see how everything that they did to evaluate who you should actually listen to was all rooted in worldly stuff. And, and guys, I think that we run the risk of doing the same thing, m- more so than you might think. I think the people that we let in have influence in our lives so often are people that have really great worldly credentials, but they may not actually have very good spiritual ones. And let this stand as a warning to us. That that we would not be people that are captivated by the things of this world and by the lies that it has to offer and say, no, what we really care about is what God says is good, what God says is right. We're going to follow Him. We're not going to let power, success, talent, and money be the things that make us evaluate whether or not we should listen to someone or give that person influence in our lives. We're going to look at godliness. We're going to look at truth. We're going to look at righteousness. You know, Paul didn't care about the same things that these false teachers cared about because they didn't matter in the light of the gospel. His mind had actually been transformed and he was taking these things that could be insecurities and instead making them captive to Christ. And may we be people that do the same. And you know, as I close here, I just want to let you know, we are in this spiritual battle, right? Like we're living in a war zone. Praise God that he fights for us. That that he's, he's won the victory of our salvation for us, that he gives us this armor to put on. And know that like, like may we be continually motivated by knowing that he will ultimately win this war in the end. Like, this is not something that we have to wonder about what's going to happen. God is going to win in the end. Satan is not an equal match for God. Right? I actually want to show you Satan's end here in Revelation chapter 20, 7 to 10. It says, When the thousand years are over. <coughs> Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog and to gather them for battle in number they are like the sand of the sea, on the seashore they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people the city he loves but fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Satan is not an equal adversary to God. And he's not king of hell, by the way. I know cartoons try and teach you that. It's like oh, God's the king of heaven and Satan's king of hell. and they, No, like, like when Satan is thrown in, into the lake of fire, what's he gonna, he's not going there to sit on a throne or to rule it. He's going there to be tormented day and night, forever and ever. God will have his victory That should be something that motivates us to continue fighting, to continue waking up, putting on the armor and hope every day, knowing that we are moving towards an eventual complete victory. But something else that we should take note of, it's not just Satan that's thrown into the lake of fire, it's also those that were with him. And you know, even at the end of our second Corinthians passage, it it talks about how these false teachers are are going to get what their deeds deserve. And we have a God that loves us, that, that, that cares for us, and frankly, that loves every person and wants them to be saved. And that's my desire too. But guys, we have a spiritual enemy that is blinding the minds of people, that is darkening hearts, and, and spiritual warfare is not just something that's defensive. It's offensive too. Like we need to be people that take light into dark places. Right? We, we have the power of the gospel to let it shine in places where Satan is, is blinding the minds of unbelievers. That we would be people that, that go and take the gospel into all sorts of different places. That's what Paul did in the first place that even started this relationship with the Corinthians because he wanted them to know the Lord. He wanted them to be set free from captivity to Satan and be transferred into the family of God. And so may we be people that live that same kind of life, that as we're fighting this spiritual war, we're we're not just putting on armor to protect ourselves, but we're also taking the battle into dark places, going as the Lord has sent us, right? He's commissioned us to go and do that. We're followers of Jesus, the the same one that was the light that that shined in dark places that came and took on flesh that went into this, what did he do as he ascended to heaven? He said, you, go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. He's commissioned us to now be people that bring light into these dark places as well, that proclaim the victory that God has over the kingdom of darkness and to invite people into that victory, setting captives free. May we be people to understand the gravity of this spiritual battle, that take every thought captive to Christ, that don't let the lies of Satan be the things that that influence and and color the way that we think. And may we march on in in, in confidence and in the power and the hope that God gives us. Because remember, the light shine in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you that you are an awesome God, that you are uh, the greatest warrior that there could ever be. Uh, that you conquered sin, you conquered death. God, we thank you that uh, you've given us light, given us uh, the ability to even just be people that, that shine light now, that are a city on a hill. And God, we understand this war that we're fighting is spiritual. Like, we can't open the eyes of the blind ourselves. We need you, Lord. We confess that we are desperate for you. We're desperate for your protection, Lord. We are, uh, so many of us, racked even just with uh, being caught in lies. That, that There's so many thoughts that we let dominate our minds that, that we have not taken captive to Christ. And God, I just I, I pray even this morning that there would be some chains that are broken in that area that, um, Lord, if there's, there's been thoughts and lies that are lodging in our head that are not in line with what you say, that those would be kicked out. God, let the light shine on that darkness. And, and God, for the many loved ones that we have, many people uh, that, that are around us that don't know you, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to be people that, that are great ambassadors, that, that take light in the dark places and that, that engage in this spiritual war, not just in a defensive manner, but also in an offensive manner. You're worthy of all of our praise, Lord. Give us power as we go forth to um, just be people that bring your kingdom wherever we go. We love you, Lord, and, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.